that uh, well, I'm gonna put it on tape. I, we were just talking about my asking that question, and uh, I said I, I really had to ask it because I wanted the answer. And he said, uh, and uh, Captain Alpha said he, he loved those questions. He gets excited. Because I think it gets to the root of the problem. I think it, 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 it as long as we cover over our feelings, as long as we don't bring them out to the table, I think that's what causes uh, the perceptions and the racism. So in answering that question, it, it tells, it, it helps me reiterate that I'm not angry anymore. I don't even remember the first person I, I uh, locked up because whoever it was did wrong. I never locked up an innocent person. Uh, I had no feeling. I didn't have a, wow, I'm locked up a white man or I'm, I'm getting back at what you did or I'm going to put something on you because you're white. Uh, I think that, that it goes back to my belief and that's, do unto others that you haven't done to you. Do you think you've become colorblind? No, I don't, I don't want anybody to become colorblind. I think color makes uh, the strength of this nation. I think color gives us our roots, our heritage, and I think that we should always remember that, or what, what our color is. When you say colorblindness to me, uh, it means like, uh, and maybe my perception, like everything's okay, and uh, I'm just grinning and laughing, okay? I think that we ought to hang on to our color and our background and our diversity. I think that's why America was founded. Actually, I meant it uh, that you're not playing favorites, that more what you said is right is right and wrong is wrong, and that whoever comes in is not going to lean more one way or... Oh, yeah, that's, that's, that, I think that's how we got in trouble with dual standards. Mm -hmm. And we begin to make the rule as to who it applied to. That's racism. So I guess our ends have to justify our means. And we as blacks can't get back at white people trying to make a just world. To your knowledge, was there ever any coordination of efforts between the NAACP and CORE and, and uh, black liberators? Any other uh, groups as far as you're being on the street that you could see? Uh, no, I, I don't, I'm not aware of any meetings that they had. I, I uh, saw the NAACP at different functions, CORE, uh, Robert Fowler, uh, Liberators, so I'm not sure what connection they had. Did you see them all together at the uh, march on Martin Luther King? I think that was the only, that's, that's the only one I saw them with because other each of the other demonstrations, there was not a unified agreement as I, well as I saw. Uh, I think that maybe some groups thought that the black liberator was too radical. Uh, some thought the direction was wrong. Some thought their whole philosophy was So I think that was a common cause that made, that let everybody uh, participate in a, in a parallel uh, issue. Okay. Could you talk for a minute um, about uh, the Negro policemen planning to form their own group? I'm looking at a newspaper article and it's uh, 1969. Um, yeah, and I supported the effort of the uh, unification of blacks um, just for the concept. Uh, when they said that uh, there's going to be a black police officer association. You see, sometimes um, 
um, the organizations that represent us don't represent us. And I think that that was the issue, that we didn't have representation. And um, we needed something that, that eventually would represent our concerns. Who was supposed to be representing you that wasn't representing you? Well, the uh, police, officers, police Officers Association that was formed when Cohen, as I recall, was beaten ninth and they took some disparate action. The police officer said, wait a minute, we need some representation. And they formed uh, to, for unity, for group, for numbers. Which you were part of? The police officer association. You were part I did. of that then? I eventually got out. Yes, I did join. You got, did you get out when this started? Mm -hmm. I had two memberships. So you got out after this was um, but I think that this direction was to uh, bring some issues to the table of black police officers, the problems, the injustices, injustices that we saw, the assignments, uh, just the overall uh, general problems of, of a specific ethnic group happened to be black. Uh, it, took some t it took a turn, and I eventually uh, dropped out of that. I don't remember that anymore. We would call it, I think, the philosophy. I think the direction, I think the purpose changed, and I would like to be a part of that. It seems as though through the years from the 60s or the late 50s, purposes have changed in different organizations. Mm -hmm. That's why we are in the condition we're in now. What condition is that? Worst in the 60s. Economic gap between black and white is farther than it was in the 60s. There's more poverty, more violence, more homeless. We're been asleep, been asleep in race relations, been asleep in progress. A few of us have gained some status, and but the masses of us are still way below the, the, what we would call uh, making a normal living. So, I'm sorry. so I think that it's 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 black people's fault and it's white people's fault. We went to sleep after the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act. Went to sleep, and uh, I think Dr. King said, uh, "Like life, race relations does not just come about; it has to be worked on continuously." And we've stopped that. What would you say about about black leadership today in St. Louis? I think they, um, I think they, they have their. Their, their finger on the problem. I'm not sure they know how to address it. I think that they know the problem. And I think there are some, um, there are some strong opinions of the solution. Uh, and I think that, as I see, they're beginning to come back together to apply all of their efforts in the solution that uh, is more or less generally accepted. And that's economics, jobs. I think that Dr. King said it very well. Uh, you see, the system let Dr. King integrate lunch counters and buses and schools. And when he began to direct his attention toward economic integration, they assassinated So I think that uh, that's the nerve of the world. That's what all the racism is about. And we have the power. And it, it's been said that people with influence do not give it up voluntarily. It has to be taken. 
Um, what role do you think churches played in, in the civil rights movement? Oh, in St. Louis in the 60s? Oh, in St. Louis? Mm -hmm. In the 60s. I think that. Uh, I think the, the direction, uh, I think the ministers uh, were a little reluctant, some ministers, because of their congregation. The attitudes of their congregation. I think as a whole uh, they did participate. I've heard stories that when Dr. King came to St. Louis he could not preach in a church. Uh, one of the only doors, one or two churches opened the doors to him. I think Reverend Nance's was one of them. So I think that people uh, both black and white at that time kind of perceived Dr. King as a, a rebel rouser. A little bit afraid of him. And I don't think not for themselves, but for the retaliation they were going to get. Uh, I had a white friend of mine in the booth say that uh, he had to uh, house Dr. King and keep him from the press when he came here, you know. So I think that uh, what the church played was not as big a role as it could have played. I think in the 60s, the South. Uh, took to the mission of the church, and that's what Dr. King was about. Uh, and we kind of sat back and, and uh, were very comfortable, and sometimes very scared, just complacent. So, When you what, say scared, what were people scared about? I was scared of losing their jobs. You know, when the system, it comes at you, and it has tremendous power. Um, just in my environment, they're trying to get my job. They've come at me in all angles. Uh, a policeman should not organize the march to Forsyth, Georgia. I mean, a policeman shouldn't be talking about nonviolence and shouldn't be active in the community. It's, so, and I can imagine that, boy, it's, it's very difficult when you have to support a family and you make a decision whether you become out uh, active in the streets. Uh, that's a difficult decision. So. Your job, uh, your boss. Uh, you go down and they say, a friend of mine was fired in a very emotional uh, endeavor just recently, a year or so ago, because his boss called him in and said, I see your name in the newspaper. And you shouldn't be doing that. And I'm telling you to quit. And he said, Well, I work for you, but I'm a master. And he was fired. So, retaliation of jobs. I mean, you become. I would look at Percy Green. I, mean, I, don't, I don't think he could get a job. I mean, they put the, a rock on him. And I'm not saying he, whatever the reason, but I understand that Percy, when they cut him loose from McDonald's, I mean, Percy's been struggling. The system is powerful. And uh, Norman Say, he had to go to Washington, D.C. He lived out there for, what, eight, nine years? He could have had a job there. I didn't realize that was why he moved. It's, it's, uh, so people had a right to be afraid, and it's a, it's, it's a decision you make. It's, they call it personal commitment. So uh, I think some of uh, it were afraid of retaliation, uh, afraid of uh, the stigma that they would get, even associated with Dr. King. I mean, remember in the 60s, uh, Jagger Hoover did a job on communists, and, throwing the, the persuasion that, that Dr. King was a communist, I mean, uh, and, and was obsessed with 
destroying Dr. King through tape wire, tapes, and etc. So then, you know, when you were classified as a communist in the 60s, oh, that was the worst thing you could ever have. I mean, we were traditionally in nationalism and rah, 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 United States. And I mean, you say a communist that uh, blacks and whites is wow, it's unheard of. So it's a difficult struggle. If you could say something to, to young people, which I know you do, but uh, if you, it's, what, what's the message that you try and give them? That the world didn't get like it is because people sat around waiting for something to come to them that people died for voting rights, both black and white. And our young people have to pick the torch up and carry it. And they have to begin to work toward justice and peace. And uh, get involved in their school, get involved in their, their voting rights, and begin to learn their history. Uh, it's amazing how uh, both black and white don't know Dr. King, don't know what he stood for, I was in Birmingham in 81, and in Kelly Ingram Park, the black kids were playing on Saturday afternoon. Never heard of Dr. King. I was in Philadelphia, Mississippi two weeks ago, which our bus tour is going down. In Philadelphia, Mississippi, they have voter apathy. They don't vote in Philadelphia, Mississippi. A uh, friend of mine, Deacon Moore, said, you know, Alfred, I think that, that Chicago and St. Louis has dumped all this mess in the Mississippi River, and it has washed down to Philadelphia. So uh, the drugs are the same high teenage pregnancy, narcotics in Philadelphia, Mississippi. And I'm just saying, wow, this is the hub of voting rights. This is where Swarnick and Goodman and Cheney lost their lives and people here don't vote. So I would say to youngsters, and that's why we're taking youngsters with us to this trip to, to, to rekindle that, that, that movement that uh, uh, they have to get involved in. If they just didn't fall out of the tree and, and get the rights to live. When I was in coming up, we couldn't come past Natural Bridge. They're, they're amazed, what? couldn't come past Natural Bridge. Blacks did not come past. They were amazed to find out that uh, the big ride at Fairground Park, and, and they go there and swim every day now. We, we should have known you then. We needed uh, someone like you to tell us about that. But, so what has to happen is our youngsters have to understand that there's alternatives to violence, that there's choices that you make. And you can't blame your condition on, on white folks and, and the mayor and the political system. You have to take charge of your own destiny. It's called empowering yourself, people. So I try to empower people as to their, the power that they have for themselves. How you making that? Tremendous. Tremendous. It's uh, Dr. King's philosophy. I've, I've, uh, you teach it. I teach it now. I practice it. And it's, it's the... Uh, never say no. It's you, change comes from the bottom up. It's empowering people to, to tell them how much power you have in yourself. And it's the, the youngsters just, they gravitate to it because we tell people, youngsters don't fight, but we don't tell them why not to fight. What alternatives? In the teaching, you, you teach people, the youngsters, how do you be cool and not fight? And they're just, just tremendous. Uh, the school system, St. Louis Public Schools, uh, I'm working with them in January. We're going to incorporate this philosophy in the curriculum. Not on Black History Month, 
which is the shortest month of the year, uh, you know, now Dr. King's birthday, it's something that, that has to be reinforced. It should be Black History Year. Yes. Okay? So what I'm saying is that, that people, when I used to start talking nonviolence as preaching, not preaching it, but teaching it, they laughed at me. You know, they said, you're crazy. And now they're saying, boy, how do we get in our system? Uh, the whole state of New York, in fact, that's what I'm going to New York for. Uh, they want to incorporate this whole philosophy in the whole state of New York. They had $1.4 million. And this is okay with the police? That's their problem. You know, I'm not saying anything derogatory with the police department. No, but I'm saying you're, you're taking, you're going out to him. I'm going my own town. Oh, John. Yeah, my own town. See, I, I was my town. So if I do it on their time, certainly I'd have to get from. Right. This so is your day off. Right. So when you say what's me. happening, I mean, it's, it's just phenomenal how people are struggling. Violence doesn't work, whether it's psychological or physical. So how does, what's happening with it? It's just growing in leaps and bounds because it makes sense. And it's, it's nothing more than what your Christian belief is. Is there anything that we could talk about any, in, in any more depth than we have as far as uh, the 60s and uh, the police and you said there was there were no subtle or unsubtle <laughs> policies that were handed down to you through the department? No, I remember I'm in a different position now. I was on the bottom of the totem pole in the 60s. Yeah, you're on the Well, I'm close to the top, so I have a lot of more Exposure. Mm -hmm. to it's hard to go back. I'm trying to pull you back into yeah. those days. It was when you, just, were, when you uh, were 25. Yeah, it was just I was uh, I was a drop in the ocean. I mean, uh, I didn't know what was happening, and I knew there was some problem with with civil rights, but I didn't know what was happening on top of the police department. <coughs> I um, I thought my sergeant was God. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. um, so I didn't have my 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 conscience level was not much further than my immediate supervisor. So with the policy of the police department or whatever, I just couldn't, uh, I didn't have that, that, that uh, yeah. sort of You were just busy trying to okay. keep myself out of trouble. This is, this is a poem. <laughs> yeah, okay. I'm always going to support a worthy call. Um, just read that for me. Democracy. Mm -hmm. Democracy will not come today this year, not ever. Compromising fear. Louder. <laughs> I have as much right as the other fella has to stand on my two feet and own the land. I tire so of hearing people say, let things take their course. Tomorrow is another day. I do not need my freedom when I'm dead. I cannot live on tomorrow's bread. Freedom is a strong seed planted in a great need. I live here too. I want freedom just as you. Hmm. Langston Hughes. I read a lot of Langston Hughes. I never read this. Um, I think it's 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 what drives me so. I, I'm uh, I can't see how people can begin to dictate inferiority and superiority. And we're all God's children. God made man, and man made race. So. This is unbelievable how close this is to me because it's so 
difficult for me to understand racism. Would you like to keep that? Please. Okay. This is uh this is rare. This is so it's so uh it's so real that uh how you feel emotionally being black is very difficult being black in white America. You wake up every morning feeling hurt. You stand out, and wherever you go, I mean, you stand out. And people never let you forget that. It's sitting in a department store, and a clerk walks up to a white person to wait on. Just out here, and they do it just so, un so unconsciously. We were standing out in the station yesterday, and I was talking to my son in a truck that he brought. I had a white shirt and uniform. And a white man stopped to get directions. And guess who he talked to? My white aide. I mean, passed up my son, his wife, and myself to ask my white aide how to get to some street. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's like somebody wants to describe racism like rain. It's either rain on you or it's somewhere gathering up. So, you know, I mean, you can't even put words in people's minds to understand how it is to be black. It's just, it's just unbelievable. Was there ever a time where you were comfortable in a specific, specific moment or where you felt, oh, goodness, this is, this is good right now. I, I feel equal. Or I, I don't mean that you don't feel, I know you feel as good as or better inside yourself, but was there ever a time, I don't know if it was when you were maybe recognized or, or, or whatever, just you'd done a good job? Or equality, to feel like there's equality. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't remember any time that I felt that there's equality in this. Uh, situation. I guess, let me think now. I guess because I see so much, okay, and the, the, the position you take depends on where you sit, okay. Uh, the, the cultural void that you have, you know, I, I couldn't find North St. Louis, and, and I think everything is okay because I don't see anybody around me that's hungry. Well, see, I have people in this district that the kids don't eat every day, that they put cotton in their noses and ears to keep the bugs from crawling their heads when they go to sleep. So I have a difficult time when I see a, a B2 that costs $500 million. I can't equate that. You had a difficult time with me not being able to find no. you. No, 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 I didn't, because I understand that. There's no problem with that, because I'm, I'm saying... I can't find places out in the county, either. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm saying that the sensitivity... Doesn't say much for me, but I... You wouldn't know what I see because yeah. of where you stay. I'm and not, that's I, not negative. And I don't know what you're feeling when I say something like, doesn't is it me. safe for me to come? Oh, yeah, no, and that's, that's no problem. But, and I think the media has done a lot mm -hmm. for that. Because and I, I talked Parkway South, and they said, "Boy, North St. Louis, it's, it's jungle." I said, "Wait a minute, you know, what do you know about North St. Louis?" Let's examine what you just said. Well, what my parents told me, 
what I read in the newspaper and what I seen on TV. You couldn't find no if I give you a million dollars. But the perception you've gotten from that news media, and that's why it's so important that blacks begin to challenge the media on what they put on the television and paper. When you see welfare as a black, well, we know that there's more white folks on welfare than black, but that's a very subtle message that gets out to our kids. Black folks think there's more people on welfare than it, because the, pa the paper, um, there was a, just the whole, just, just, you know, just very subtle, that's what they call covert racism. You see, it was more easy to deal with in the 60s, it was overt. And that's what makes it much more difficult to deal with now, because it's covert. And they told you in the 60s, you can't come here, and you knew what you were fighting. And there was a sign, there was an order, the police protected it. Now in the 80s, you say, okay, they go to what the paper just said about the, the segregation in St. Louis, about the housing that, that is certainly segregated. And I think in Sunday they're starting another uh, article about polarization of race in St. Louis. So it's, it's done very subtle. I mean, it, it, just, it just comes on you. And you say, wow, we've been in 20 years and, and, and the, the, the blacks are here and the whites are there and they're still redlining. I mean, I thought that was the 60s. It's very difficult to put your finger on it and, and fight it because it's done not covert, and that's, that's much more, much more dangerous than overt racism. So we got a lot to do, and, and, and talking to you, I mean, this is what it's all about. Well, I hope that, and you'll have maybe a morning in February to come to the uh, History Museum because we have children classes coming. Myself and other people will sit there at a table and talk to them about how to do oral history, what we're doing now, so that they can learn. And then maybe if you would come, we would sit there while we take 15 minutes to do that. And then I would start to ask you two or three questions and tell them that then after I ask you some, they will be drawn into that interviewing process and then they won't begin to ask you questions. And they do, they do. And if they don't, then a teacher does or somebody that, you know, we keep it going and eventually, uh, that's the only solution. And it's worked very well, and yeah. they, we've gotten a good response. That's the only solution. See, we've lost a whole generation. So I hope that you will come to Let me know when, because uh, as you, and we could take it through these streets, there's God's children that's just wasting their time. They're unemployed. They have no self-esteem. You know what drugs are? My philosophy of what drugs are? Low self-esteem. When I want to get high, I get high for who I am, where I'm going, what I'm going to do. That's the same with you, your husband, your household, your goals. People who are hopeless get high off of drugs. People who like themselves don't destroy their bodies. So what we what we have to do? You, you can't say no to drugs. That's idiotic. I mean, these people come back to the same environment, the same streets, the same peers, the same dope, and they go get cleaned out out at Highland Center, and they come back to the black neighborhood, which is different. How'd you do it, though? I wanted to call you Charles, but how did you do it? Because you, you, um, became a police officer and all your friends taunted you and, and turned away from you? I think it's my education. You just said no, obviously. Well, not because, see, there are some other support systems behind Charles Alfred. My mother was a teacher. My father was a supervisor. Uh, high values for education. High religious values, Christian. And high strong family ties. The three institutions that 
that I feel are contributed to what I am is the family, the education, and the religious. And those are the institutions of the spirit now. But you know, Very that, you know that happens to people who have those ties too. As the exception, not the rule. Okay, and I think that yeah, you can have those ties, and then if you say um, we're going to give you everything you want, okay, and, and you don't want for anything, you know, there's no gain without pain. I mean, I had all these, but I had to get up in the morning, wash. I I didn't. I had to wear my my brother's clothes. I mean, I struggled. You know, I wasn't a bad struggle, but I found out the value. I had some values established in me. I think that when you have people that just don't have any values, it's instant gratification. Whether you're rich or whether you're poor, there's going to be some problems. Yeah. So I contribute my success to those three institutions. That's why I work so hard in education. The family, you don't have to have two people in your family. There's a significant other that can be a father, an uncle, a preacher. And then certainly your religious values. It has to be, the only way you fight this massive trend of drug is put a small barrier up. It's the only way you fight it. You put some morals around those kids that when they have the opportunity, they say no because of their moral value. So that's why. You went to Forsyth, Georgia? Bill Bailey? Went. Went with I, was in, I was in Atlanta. We take every, every uh, for the last seven years, I just, well, for 12 years I've been reading Dr. King. And for the last four, Mrs. King has asked me to teach on the faculty. So, in, in the Summer Institute in Atlanta, Georgia, they have it for a four and a half day summer workshop. So in January, uh, I've been taking buses down for the last seven years or eight years to uh, raise the conscience level of St. Louis. I felt so that I was so wiped out of the movement that I began to take people down to Atlanta. What I do, I hit a hub. Like last year, we went to Montgomery. We had a significant hub that was significant in the movement, and then we went to Atlanta for two days. We leave here on a Friday, go significant to a hub, hub of, of in, the, in the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. Okay, Atlanta is where we're going. Oh, I see. Okay, but we hit a hub on the way. Okay. okay. Uh, last year we went through Montgomery, and we told the significance of Montgomery. I had a lady that was involved with Dr. King in the Montgomery Improvement Association, mm -hmm. orientate the group talk about what it was for 381 days, stop the bus, the atmosphere of Montgomery, what it is now, to get some little education about Montgomery. How do you pick who you take? We just advertise for a price. In fact, I have a brochure now, I'll show up before I leave. So this year, year before that was in Birmingham. We spent about three hours in that, in that significant area and then going to Atlanta for two days. In Atlanta, uh, we'll participate in the uh, oldies night that uh, that Mr. King ha always has. That all the civil, all the old civil rights people come in and, that are not recognized now, and they just have a little rap, little show. Uh, we participate in the uh, the Morehouse Martin, the play Martin, the march, the ecumenical services, the festivities at the, at the King Center. So we do that for two days. And then we come back to St. Louis. It's gotten so popular now. I take three buses. I have I have three buses right now. Feel we will leave January the 11th, January 13th, or Friday, and my buses are filled. And, and you come back when? Come back that uh, Tuesday morning, about one in the morning, so they don't miss school, uh, and they don't have to take off from work because Monday's a holiday. We leave Atlanta around four o'clock on that Monday, Dr. King's holiday, and then we come back and get at one o'clock. I've got St. Louis University students gone, Webster Road, Webster College gone, 
uh, Harrisville, and I have uh, 13 high school students now. And senior citizens, uh, clergy, uh, Jim Buth from the Urban League, President Urban League is gone, John Moten from the League. So it's a very diverse group. We're going through Philadelphia, Mississippi this year, going through Memphis. Uh, and I was, that's when I went down to Memphis and Philadelphia to be the forerunner to make sure that it was okay. And uh, went through the Lorraine, went by the Lorraine Hotel, saw the room, got to get assassinated. We're going to go into Philadelphia, get orientated there uh, by the, the ex president of the NAACP, who was president of the NAACP. You know what I'm saying? And I'm trying to ignite some activity, some action. Uh, in people's uh, community. You see, Dr. King did not get killed for how eloquent he spoke. He got killed because of what he did. So you can't just talk, you can't get to be action oriented. And we've seen some tremendous uh, growth in people because the first thing nonviolence changes is itself, it changes you. And that's why I can talk and not hate white folks. That's why I can say, hey, I, I understand. I mean, I, I don't hate when people, and it, I take it, I was in homicide. And I took the same philosophy of homicide. It's not a strategy for conflict, it's a strategy for life. So you, I took it to my wife, my, my social, my police work here, and it's, it's, it's unbelievable. What kind of follow-up do you have with these students? Oh, we meet every Saturday at 4 o'clock. What I did, in fact, they gave me a plaque from the city. Uh, I did told Ms. King, I said, you know, Ms. King, if this, if this philosophy really works, we'll test it. And I'm concerned about these gangs. <clears throat> So why don't we, for the youth workshop, we always had a youth workshop in, in, in Atlanta with the adult. I'm going to see if I can get some kids together to bring to Atlanta for the workshop. It's a four and a half day workshop starts on Sunday. So, uh, uh, and I think we ought to bring some kids who have been locked out of the system. You got to get your mama. Yeah, part of it. We ought to bring some kids to get locked out of the system. Some kids have been locked out, whether they dropped out in school or dropped out out of school. So I went to community college. I said, I need, this is the criteria, I need some people that maybe not be the best, gang leaders, participate in gangs, uh, sold on drugs, okay? But I'm not going to make all that. I'm going to make some good people in there, you know? So I did. I got some gang leaders, people that have shot bought before, sold cocaine. Didn't. Didn't tell the other the other kids what their background was. So I picked 19 high school kids from city, county, and I said, okay, we're going to go down south, and we're going to go through the south. Uh, I had connections in Philadelphia. They were bringing some kids down through Ithaca, New York, Washington, D.C., by Amtrak. I was going to meet them in Birmingham at the Amtrak station. They had two buses waiting there for them. I had one bus. So we ventured out of here on a Friday with these kids, had chaperones, and we met in Birmingham, met the other kids, and we had a three-bus caravan that went through Birmingham, Selma, Tuskegee, Montgomery, bombarded with blackness. Those kids' eyes, I mean, we let them talk to all the old civil rights workers, to the significance of this. Lady in Selma was trampled by the horse at Edmund Pettus Bridge on Bloody Sunday, and they just hugged her. I mean, yes, I mean, those kids were just and not one problem out of any of them. I had taken a youngster out of juvenile court that had just shot a uh, gang fight up on the West End two days before we left. And I had picked him because he really had a white mother and a black father and was just torn between, you know, 
Daddy was gone, alcoholic, still lived with Mama, white lady over on Delmore, 16 years old, trying to find who he was, you know. And uh, uh, I took Billy, Billy Mason's in Memphis now. The judge let me, gave me out of juvenile detention, paroled him to me, which had never been done before. The adults in juvenile didn't like that. They said he should be in juvenile, but this youngster was worth saving. And uh, we think we've saved him. We had to get him out of St. Louis. He's in Memphis now. And that's, when, that's why I'm going through Memphis to pick him up. Did he live with a family? With a sister in Memphis. When I went to Philadelphia two weeks ago, I drove down. So I stopped in Memphis and got him and uh, took him to Philadelphia and with me because it's about 190 miles from Philadelphia and brought him back to Memphis and dropped him off. He has a girl, a girl has had his baby in St. Louis and he wants to come back, but that violates his parole, plus he get killed because the gang's still looking for him. So, but Billy came back to juvenile detention and told him, and I was speaking to juvenile detention uh, two weeks ago, Sister Hyatt had me down there and I spoke to him and they knew Billy. And uh, a young man who happened to be white stood up and said, you know, I was Billy's roommate and Billy changed. I mean, Billy changed, and I said, now, I want y'all to know, I did not pay that young man to say that. I didn't even know he was Billy's roommate. So it works. Oh, it's, it's so tremendous. We meet with these kids every uh, Saturday at 4 o'clock. Uh, I've got a, a friend that owns an airplane. We're going to go out to Queensborough Airport, and he's going to tell them how an airplane flies. You know, we just do simple things. We don't talk about Dr. King and nonviolence. Expose them. You expose, and then you put it in some perspective of their own language because talking about Selma and Montgomery and Dr. King, they didn't know who he was. But if you if you talk about the principles rather than the man, you see the messenger's dead, but the message still lives on. So it's more important to articulate the message than show a lot of film about the 60s and Selma. They have no, no relation to that. You're going to turn them off because they're on AM and you on FM. Well, how do you relate the airplane and how it works to them? Just self-esteem. You just say, did you know how airplanes fly? We were, they meet here. And I got, I had a Baki, one of my favorites, besides all of my favorites, I guess 19, I love all of them. But Baki, uh, I, I chose him because uh, he changed the names of Marshall. And we were in a workshop, I was in a workshop at the community college and he was with students. And we were talking about the philosophy and going through some role play. And uh, we were dialoguing, and he was talking, and, and uh, he said, you know, I hate my mama, but I would kill for her. And I said, wait a minute, because I didn't want to get into the violence. Well, I, I just have to, you know, give me a, give me some. But his mother left when he was 13 years old. He was with his foster parents. But he's, he loves her as mama. I mean, hates his mama, but he would kill. And I think the question was, when will you kill? And he said, well, I'd kill if you mess with my mama, but I hate him. I said, wow, and he's just a born leader. I mean, this kid, uh, I took him I said, you know, I'm going to take you on a trip with me. This was before I, I left. I said, you know, I want you to go with me. I think you got, you've got some potential power, leadership. And that young man went to Atlanta with us. Now, these kids didn't know each other, didn't know, didn't have any idea. We had orientation to Urban League with the parents, and off we went. And they became family. They did not know Billy was foot was let out of juvenile court to go with me. Nobody knew that but me. They had no identity, they didn't know anybody's background, and they just jailed together. We stayed in downtown Atlanta at a hotel, four in a room, and uh, they made the rules. I said, okay, this is a this ain't no flea bit in the hotel, right? 
said, no, it's happening. You know, I said, okay, now I love you. I care about you. I made money, eight thousand dollars to get y'all down here, and and I'm brought you into good facilities. I was just gonna ask you how how somebody uh, like Billy who pays for Billy. No, we went. Everything went. In fact, uh, everything went what? Everything went with with sponsorship. Uh, Mr. Electric gave me revenue clue. Uh, Anheuser Busch gave me a thousand. Austin Brenner gave me a thousand. Urban League, we cleaned gas and we paid the tuition, and then made that whole tour in the south. And, uh, and here we've got a sign where they're picketing clean gas here for jobs, and now they're giving you money. Yeah, they want they gave me money to take, and and we we spent uh, four days in a hotel, and they had kids from Philadelphia, New York, and do you know, St. Louis kids, Mrs. King, we had critique after every every day the faculty and, and always compliment the, the youngsters in St. Louis. We had 135 youngsters in the workshop, five workshops. St. Louis youngsters took the lead in all everything, participation, enthusiasm. I think you might get a policeman out of somebody? If I can just get somebody to help other folks, doesn't doesn't really make a difference what well, I mean, profession you're in. Yeah. Baki, uh, dramatic cases. Stepmother put him out. Didn't ask why. He deserved it. He was at Beaumont High School. He walks out here with his friend in the county. He can't, and he has a little part-time job because a friend said you have to give him some money. But he can't get a bus out there after nine. And uh, if he doesn't work, he can't stay. Okay, no way to get back to school, and, and I'm saying, Baki, let me let me call some contacts. Well, he's living over here on Holly, uh, in school at Beaumont, doing pretty good, going to graduate and still working. So uh, he comes over here. He was the one that he sold cocaine. He was, he had an Uzi machine gun. He shot people. He had a nervous breakdown. He's been in confined. He's 17 years old. That's too much for. Him. Lifetime. But he comes over here. He called me the other day, Captain. Uh, at home, well, I get all of my home numbers. So they'll call me if you, you know, if you if you feel bad about yourself, call me. Yeah. Billy calls me from Memphis. He was down, and I said, Billy, you know, what people need are comments, are ear to listen. That's all. They don't need a lot of money. Just say I love you, I care about yeah. you. That's all. And it's amazing how that little giving of self just rises those kids up. It's self-esteem, it's, it's, it's self-awareness, that's all it is. He called me the other day, and I, I thought, oh, Lord, you know how you think something's wrong. He was on my answer, sir, Baki, he called Baki. So I called him, I said, Baki, what's happening? And he said, oh, I know, Captain, how you doing? I said, uh, my mother, his mother, who he hates, is going to co-sign for him to get a car. And he wanted to know, he wanted to ask me, what bank should he go to? And I'm saying. He doesn't hate her. Right, no, he, he doesn't. He hates how she makes him feel. Yeah. And I said, wow, that's wonderful, Baki. I said, well, let me think now. I've got some friends in some banks, but I think you ought to go to where your mother banks. I mean, he knew the answer. He just wanted to talk to he me. He wanted to tell you. Yeah, and tell me that he, so that's the kind, of, that's what keeps me going. That's what the world's all about. And those kids just, every, at 4 o'clock, if they can't make the meeting here, they call. And I sent Baki a policeman to get Baki because he lives over there. And he said, hey, Captain, I'm him at the corner because his partners, you know, you snitching. In the black community, when you're in the police car, you snitching. So he had to, we had to let him off at the corner. He had to walk around the corner, you know. And I said, oh, that's okay. That's all right, brother. Were you ever threatened when you were young by, I mean, when you were a policeman? Were you 
were you ever fearful for your life by what walked, you did? I walked through what I go. I've been shot at, been trying to throw out of windows, I've been, you name it, I've been everything. I walked through what I go. I'm going to be, I've been shot at numerous times. I haven't had no patsy life. I mean, I've been in North St. Louis projects. All blacks went to the projects. When you come out of the police department, you wrote the projects. So now I've, I've walked and uh, spent time in narcotics. And it's just, oh yeah, I've had what you name it, and I've had, I've had the opportunity to kill. I have chosen not to kill. You have never killed. Never shot at anybody. My Bible says, "Thou shalt not kill." It doesn't say, "Thou shalt not kill unless you justify." Doesn't say thou should not kill unless you stealing somebody, a burglar or rape some woman. You run and you got the right to kill her. You steal. That's man-made law. That's a higher order of law. And you have to go home at night and lay your head on your pillow. Where, where did you walk through that? Through that, was in his. <laughs> it was in his height. I mean, ah, oh, oh, sixty. 68 through 70, that was the same as the 90s. We, we would uh, take the fire trucks in there. The, fire, the farmer wouldn't go in there to put out a fire. The postman wouldn't go in there. No delivery was going there. They, they would meet us at Jefferson and Dixon and we would take them in. That was, uh, it was uh, a jungle. It was, it was uh, Puerto Rico. They come all the way across the country to study Puerto Rico. And I was, you know, there were there were beautiful people that lived down there. I mean, there were school teachers. You know, there were people that lived. And then you can't stack people on top of everybody like that. I mean, there were no restrooms. You know, there were just people in those buildings just stacked. And it was it's because when Mayor Tucker wiped out Milky area for industrial, that's where the A.G. Edwards and uh, he just wiped out 12 square blocks. That was a black community, and those people didn't know about keeping houses. They went out to the Central West End and West End, and, and and some people cut those houses up, those one-family flats, and made them poor, livable conditions. They crowded people in their slum landlords, and they said, "Look at them! I knew they were barbaric. They don't know how to keep a house up." And they come in Puerto Rico, built Puerto Rico, and said, "Boy, this is a savior, black folks. Give y'all some housing." And they made 13 floors. But the elevator didn't stop at every floor. No restroom facility. And when kids had to urinate, they urinated on the ground. They wasn't going 13 floor. And that wasn't called both black. You could put white folks over there. A Cuban. A Korean. There's just too many people on top. And it was infested with narcotics. Uh, there were welfare people over there. But people felt like the dope dealers were the, were the, uh, the heroes. I mean, you... Your welfare runs out, your coupon runs out, and in the month, the dope dealers would feed them, give them money, give them dope on credit. Were you, you were there when they were having the rent strikes? Do you remember that? When they refused to pay their rent? Mm -hmm. Yeah, they put an escrow or something. Right. I was down at car. I used to be a security guard. I used to work secondary at copper projects. They're people. Car square? Cross square was not a lot of problem because you didn't have the the hire. It was too right. you, 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 but they were involved in the rent strike, strike right? And there wasn't a lot of wasn't a lot of problem with Cross Square, mm -hmm. like there's not a problem, not a lot of problem with Newmark because they learned from Puerto Rico. 
No, Cochran has a tenant manager. That's Bertha Gilkey. Okay, so then it was just. Well, they they did have problems with Cochran until that until Bertha moved in there and began to say, okay, if this is your home, then let's take care of it. I mean, it's your your own destiny. They have tenant reviewing boards. They have tenant security guards. They have tenant people repair. It's tenant owned, well, tenant operated. They tried to do that with Pruitt Igo, didn't they? Too far gone. The best thing they did was blow it up. And I was there when it came down. I, I was going to ask you if you Yeah, were. I saw it. Uh, yeah, yeah. How'd you feel? Thank God. Thank God. That's that's a system that, that uh, people should not live in. It's such a system. It was, it had gotten out of hand. There was no saving. It was gone. I can't believe it being designed with that one. Poor design. Absolutely. The the elevators, uh, you would, you would uh, ride an elevator. And there would be a gun that would come down. In fact, I, I'd walk up. I never rode elevators because they could stop them between the floors. They jump on top of the elevator, stick a pistol down, and you wallet up. All you would see with a hand, the pistol. And they would, uh, oh, it was, it was just horrible. And the trash, they would have incinerators that would never work. They would dump the trash down to a central location, but it was always backed up the whole chute. There was trash on garbage. Why didn't anything work? Why didn't that work? Too many people. Too many people. You can't people. You can't put that many people that have are undereducated and uneducated, okay, into a into a, a central location together. You have to mix to look good. And there, of course, there were only black officers. There were some white officers. Down there. there were. And, and Pruitt Igo had one of the most one of the biggest rides in St. Louis. And that, they they had a black officer. I never forget Fourth of July. They hit a. Uh, it was a fight. As you said. And the white, the black officer came into place and uh, broke a shotgun over a guy's head. And man, they tore a police car. And we had a real bad situation in Pruitt Igo because number one, the policeman hit from what we could gather. The wrong, the person that they whooped was the person who was trying to break the fight up, and the people who were fighting had left before the police got there. And then when the policeman began to chastise the person who we found was the wrong person, mother jumped in and he popped mama. Mm -hmm. Locked up mama. Man, you talking about, you know, it was a powder cake. That's the worst riot thing. One of the worst riots. I mean, it, everybody erupted, not because they were mad, because they knew that that was the wrong guy y'all had in the car. Those people that were fighting are gone. We had to go back up hours later and get the right people to fight and they had left. It's amazing that um, uh, that the Black Liberators or that those militant, more militant groups never made a stronghold. I think because like in any other endeavor, you can't solve problems with violence. You can't. You see, no, but you may not be able to solve them. But they—they they just never—they just never got the people. Because you can't. People are not going to respond to violence. Okay. Well, they did. In, in well, temporarily, uh, for short term. Okay, but you can't even, like Dr. King said, that when there's a revolution, it comes from within the police department. You can't have a revolution when the police department is for the establishment because that's the power. So rather than give my life for some useless cause, I don't understand the philosophy of nonviolence. 
because it doesn't seek to tear people down. So when you want to, like I was telling Cohen, and I told him this many times, and Dance, if you beat us, the police department, the National Guard comes in. If you beat the National Guard, they're going to activate the army. There's no logic to violence. So you have a few automatic weapons up and down Franklin. Do you know how many weapons the army has? There's just no sense in violence. So you're never going to be able to, number one, pull in any type of following the violence. That's why Dr. King was so powerful. He didn't throw a brick, didn't shoot a gun, didn't talk about anybody. How'd they take that kind of theory? It wasn't what they were advocating. Well, they were trying to make their own destiny. Yeah, but you can't, you can't show power with four or five machine guns when the power structure makes the machine guns. Did you ever feel sorry for them? Oh yeah, they were dedicated. I mean, uh, a few a few of them were tag along, rabbarizer, uh, glad to throw a brick at the police, you know, hoodlums. But I really think that Charles Cohen was sincere. I think that he came into St. Louis and I think he's still involved in activity somewhere. I think he was sincere, but I think he gravitated toward the wrong people. But I, yeah, yeah, I really do. I uh, often uh, talk to him. I think he was really sincere. But what about Ivory Perry? I, don't, I mean, I know he was sincere, but did you know Ivory? Yeah, yeah, Ivory was uh, active and, uh, again, still fighting. I mean, Ivory hadn't given up. So, those, you know, it's, it's, it's not who runs the fastest or the swiftest. It's those that can endure. And we've got some endurers. Norman Say, the Ivory Perrys, uh, the Percy Green, and whatever capacity he's in. So... Uh, one last question, and I'll let you get your mama. <laughs> yeah, because I'll be talking to... <laughs> um, the leaders that we talked about before, do you think they were really leaders, or were they just perceived as leaders as far as the community was concerned? I think they were leaders. I think that they certainly uh, had some direction. They had a vision. I think that at that time, I had no... I had no real solution or, or, or feel. I knew there was a problem, but I really had no direction or solution. So what it did, it, it focused, it, it had me, it made me focus because I had nothing to do. I mean, what can I do? I was mad, but uh, certainly they were they they were leaders because they were able to organize people, and I guess that's what I classify. And regardless of what, however far they got, for some reason or other, they were leaders in my opinion because they were able to bring people together and talk about a cause that I think would not only help black people but also help white people. Thank you. Thanks for making time for me.